Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 380 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron. So thrilled that you are here today as we are talking to Kitty Zeldis. And this was such a fun interview. We're talking about using our senses in our writing. And we're also talking about failing to sell a book and lessons learned and following advice. So please do stick around for that. Short intro today as I am still on the road traveling in the States. I hope that as you listen, I am hanging out in my sister's backyard and that we are singing some songs and maybe we're singing California Stars, which is guaranteed to make me cry when we do it in three-part harmony. We did talk about hiring the same guitarist, accompanist as we hired last time to help us out. And I hope that we do that because, oh, my heart will not be more full than singing with them. I hope that as you listen to this, you are getting some of your own writing done. I hope that I'm getting some of my own writing done as we are traveling. However, maybe not, maybe not. I have considered this time actually trying to work because I am on deadline. I don't normally work when I'm traveling, but last year, honestly, it was so stressful for me, the trip to the States. I overbooked myself in a in an introvert's nightmare. And I'm not doing that this time. I'm trying really, really hard not to. And I am thinking that dipping into my own book every day might help ground me. So I am thinking about experimenting with that. And perhaps right now, I'm not singing with my sisters. Perhaps I'm at a cafe somewhere working on my book. We'll see. I will let you know when I come home, how it went. Um, but yes, I hope that you're getting your own writing done. I hope that you are considering joining 90 Days to Done, rachelherron.com slash 90 in order to write your book or finish your book. We start in September. So please come check that out if you are at all interested, if it has been piquing your interest, if it has been nagging you that perhaps Rachel's help might get you over the finish line. It will. I will. I can. It's what I do best, honestly. So um, please go check that out if you would like to. And now let's just jump into the interview. Here is Kitty's bio. Uh, born in Chedera, Israel, Kitty Zeldis is the pseudonym for an award-winning author of nine novels and over 35 books for children. Her essays, articles, and short fiction have been published in many national and literary publications. She is also the fiction editor of Lilith Magazine. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, and The Dressmakers of Prospect Heights is her most recent novel. Please ignore some of the um, technical difficulties. We have a little bit of a a problem with the sound at the very beginning when a phone is ringing and continues to ring, but it does get better. Um, and it's just such a fun interview. So please stick around for that. And here we go. Okay. You know, I love planning and goals, but I believe that all plans and all goals fall apart and knowing how to replan and rejigger them is essential for being a happy, productive writer. In my Patreon group, Rachel says plan. We plan the month's writing goals in detail. We rejigger as needed. We debrief at the end of the month 
and then we rinse and repeat. This Patreon level also comes with a monthly live Zoom video Q&A. It's just for this group. It is not for the podcast or anyone else. It is recorded so that if you can't attend the monthly session live, that's fine. You'll get it and I will answer any questions you have. But this is as close to coaching as I do anymore besides my 90 days courses. So if this is something that interests you, if you want to plan your writing goals a little bit better and give yourself a little bit more grace when they fall apart, because they will, and then set them up again, this is where you should be. Come over to patreon.com slash Rachel for more information. I would love to have you. Well, I could not be more pleased to welcome you to the show. Hello. Will you please share your name and pronouns with us? Um, I'm Kitty Zeldis. She, her. Thank you. You wrote a book called, well, you've written a lot of books, but this book is called The Dressmakers of Prospect Heights. And I loved it. I absolutely adored it. My agent, Susanna, sent it to me, or maybe I got it from your publicist. That's probably it. And I, I, I have to admit to you, Kitty, that I start a lot of books for this show because publicists send them to me and I don't finish them all because I don't need to finish a book that I'm not passionate about. And I loved your book. I just fell right into it. Thank you so much. I'm, but at the end of the show, we'll talk about what the book was about. But I have to say that your deep dive into emotion and connection, connection of female characters really, really moved me. So we will talk about that. But for now, since the show is about the process of writing, can you tell us how, what is your process? When and where and how do you get it all done? Um, well... You know, what I've thought about is the less time you have, the more you make of it. Mm. Uh, and when I had very small children and I had a, the idea, oh, of course, somebody's calling me. I'm, no, I just put it in the other room. So we don't to it. That's all right. We do, we do real spam. life on the show. It's all spam anyway. Like that's <laughs> exactly. That's all I get on that number. Um, <laughs> when, when I had these small children, I had an idea for a novel. Uh, and it was the first novel that I was going to publish. I didn't know that yet. And I thought, how am I going to write this? Like, I'm going to have to wait until they're 18 and off at college. And then I realized, no, there would be five days a week. They would be in school from nine to three. And those were the times that I I didn't do anything else. I mean, I'd go to the bathroom, I'd eat lunch. But, you know, like I didn't, I didn't go out. I didn't make plans. I didn't lounge around. I didn't exercise them like that was the writing time because I thought that these children of mine who I wanted and I brought into the world deserved a mother who didn't say what when they, you know, asked her question. Like I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't want to be interrupted. So, uh, and I realized that if I did that, that, and I committed to two pages a day, five days a week, even someone with my very limited mathematical skills could, would understand that at the end of the week, I would have 10 pages and at the end of the month, I have 40 pages. And I wrote a novel that way. Mm. And that was really good. Um, now, I have to say that I am like less tethered. My children are grown up. They don't live here. Um, my husband is ill and he doesn't live with me anymore. I had to move him to other living. So I'm really by myself except with this little dog who may or may not emerge. So in a funny way, I have to like impose limits on myself. Otherwise, like the day is just open and I can just do anything and then you don't get writing done. So I do try to treat it like a job. I get up. I have coffee, I try to exercise a little bit, and then I get to writing. And it's like a daytime thing. You know, I do it during the day. I do break for lunch to take the dog out. I stop maybe around five. Um, if I'm deep into something, I might look over what I've written in the evening, but I don't, I don't 
do new writing in the evening generally. Do you still give yourself a goal, like a, a word count or a page goal, or do you kind of more, is it more organic now? Um, no, you're right. I should have, I should have said that I, it's not so much a page goal. It's like, what, you know, am I going to write this scene or finish this chapter or revise, you know, go back and do this. So yeah, I guess I have something finite in my mind and that's a good thing because, you know, a novel, a novel exists in time in the way maybe, uh, I used to write short stories. I love them. I don't know if your readers are, you know, your listeners mm -hmm, yeah. are um, and I think, parenthetically, that short stories are more like poems than they are novels. I don't think one is the stepping stone to the other. But I have, in my youth, sat down and banged out a draft of a story, like in one sitting. It wouldn't be the final version, but I could do that. You can't do that with a novel. No. You just can't. So you have to kind of allow it to exist in time. And, and that means that you know, you have to have a different relationship to it and, mm. and getting, um, you know, you can't just sit down and finish it, although you would like to, because it's weighing on you and you can't. So you have to <laughs> integrate it into the rest of your life. I don't, I don't know other, any other way around it. I really love that, that phrase of letting it exist in time. And I think that I, I'm sure not all writers, but many writers that I speak to, we are impatient creatures. And I would like to have the book done by Tuesday after I think of it. Right. And we just, yeah. and because that's the way I do everything else. I do everything else as fast as I possibly can. And you can't do that with a novel. Are you more of a pot, plotter or a fly by the seat of your pants kind of person? I prefer fly by the seat of my pants because I think when it goes well, I like the characters to kind of give me that, like they get to, they get uppity, bossy. They say, I'm not doing that. I wouldn't do that. Like, what makes you think I would do that? But in in the um, kind of trajectory of a writer's career, like I just sold another book to HarperCollins and I sold okay. it on three chapters of the synopsis. Thank you. I'm excited. I have to write it. Um, but, <laughs> but because, you know, like I have to give them something, mm -hmm. I have to write a synopsis, which is like the most tedious and unfun thing there is. It's like sucking all the joy out. I'm right? convinced that nobody likes synopses. Agents don't like them. Editors don't like them. Authors hate them. And I don't know about you, but when I have sold on synopsis, I write the synopsis. I believe in the synopsis. And then I start writing the book and it's just gone. And we don't ever mention it again. I deliver a completely different book. And, right. the, and the editor never says, this isn't what you said, because it couldn't be. I didn't know what the book wanted to be yet. That's right. That's right. I found exactly the same thing. So yeah. we share that. But, but nevertheless, you're made to do it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I guess I have like a general idea of where it's going. Yeah. You know? yeah. I would rather not. I would rather just, because I start with a voice. Mm. You know, like, so I really, like when it's going well, I feel like I'm not even writing it as much as transcribing it. Mm. That someone sort of like poked me and said, hey, I have to tell you something. It's really important. And like, you're supposed to listen and get it down and get it down right. And I feel like I am more, it's, um, conveyor than its originator. I think That's I have helpful. never felt like that. And I've always, I've always wanted to. So maybe someday that will happen that to me. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, it's a brief incandescent moment, oh. but I get a few of them here and there. And so if I'm starting with a voice, then the plot is kind of open, you know, like I have an idea of like a situation that somebody might find herself in yeah. or himself. I've started with a few guys, not too many, but most, mostly women, but 
but like then what? Like then they have to start talking to you and telling yeah. you. Yeah. What is your biggest challenge when it comes to writing? Slowing down, like you, fast, fast. My grandpa used to call me schnell, schnell, which means fast in Yiddish. And, um, and I do, and, and I have to, like, I accept that I write many drafts, mm-hmm. many, many drafts. I have a friend, oh, I have many friends who are writers, but one in particular I'm thinking of, Patricia Grossman, shout out for Patty, uh, whose first draft and final draft are much closer mm. than mine, but mm-hmm. she is such a controlled, measured, careful, you know, kind of gorgeous writer in that way. And it, it shows like she doesn't have to do all those drafts because her process is slower, but mine is fast. Yeah. You know? Mine is, mine is fast and chaotic. Yes. that is. <laughs> exactly. and, and I see like sometimes now I know this about myself. Like I set something up and I'm like really racing to get to the end, to get to the point. And then I might read it a few days later or somebody else points out to me, like you have missed a really good dramatic opportunity here. Yeah. You could, you know, you could go back in and like, don't summarize this. Give me a scene here. Like, yeah. let them be talking to each other. Let them be yelling at each other. Whatever. Don't don't summarize. You know. Oh, let, that's let a very good lesson. Yes. What is your biggest joy when it comes to writing? That voice, mm-hmm. absolutely that voice. Like, I just feel like I am possessed by a spirit, and I, I wait for it. You said that word incandescent and your face kind of glowed when you said it too, that it, it just sounds marvelous. And I, but I, but I want to go nitty gritty with it. How often does it happen? Does it happen once a year or once a week? I have no idea. Okay. More than once a year, not as often as once a week, somewhere okay. in there, you know, maybe certainly at the beginning, it's like, what gets me going? Like, it was like it, I, I need to write this book because somebody is telling me to write it. And then, you know, I get glimmers of it and some days I get it you know it like it's with me and then other days um it's not Dominic Dunn who's not a novelist I necessarily admire very much but I love this quote of his he said sometimes writing a novel is like laying pipe mm-hmm. and I like I think we've all felt that right like sometimes mm-hmm. you just have to get somebody from one point to the other and you have there's a certain amount of information you have to give with that and you just like have to do that it's not very inspired, but yeah. nevertheless, for the thing to hang together, you just have to do it. So, yeah. And along with that, that pipeline quote, I, th- I think of the Louis L'Amour quote, which I love it, which is, um, start writing. The water doesn't flow until you turn the faucet on. And, uh, so in oh, a way wow. we're laying the pipe, we're turning the faucet on. And every once in a while you get that incandescent moment if you're, yes. if you're lucky and it won't happen if you don't show up for it, if you don't keep turning up. That's right. Yeah. Right. Gorgeous. Can you share a craft tip with our writers of any sort? Um, yes, I thought about that because I got your questions. I think when I'm writing a scene, I like to do a little checklist of the five senses. Mm. And I don't, I don't want to use them all in every scene because I think that would be really tedious. But I think for those kinds of, you know, visceral details, like what is somebody smelling? Like possibly if that works, mm. you know, I mean, we tend to, we tend to go for what they see and hear, characters see and hear. But, you know, what about like something that feels uncomfortable or scratchy or soft and wonderful or, you know, as I say, a smell or a taste. And it doesn't even have to be that they're eating food, but like maybe there's a taste in your mouth that's weird. And mm-hmm. like, what's that? You know, so I think those kinds of things. And I 
after I've written something, I will go back and have that checklist in my mind and think like maybe I can offer a detail here, like using one of those those sense details to bring this thing to life, you know, because it's yeah. um, because that is sort of how we apprehend experience, you know, like all the senses are working. We might not be thinking about all of them. At, you know, they're not forefront in our minds, but yet they're all there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, it's so good to be reminded of that because I think that I, as a writer, I'm always just a head in a jar. Basically I'm transporting thoughts around and I forget to put those feelings in. And I like that you think about all of them because you're really catering to all readers. If you, mm-hmm. if you drop in a few of each throughout the book or throughout the chapters, um, because I am primarily driven besides, you know, sight, which most of us have m- many more receptors in our brains for sight than anything else. If we are a sighted person, but after that it's scent for me, it, I am a dog when it comes to scent. I can smell seven things in this office right now. And when somebody writes about scent, it lights up that olfactory cortex in my brain and I can almost smell it, but other people wouldn't have that. They may be more sensory touch driven. Do you agree? I do. And it, it, right. It almost doesn't matter which one, because some are going to work better in certain instances, but, but they really do a lot to like bring your reader close in and feel what your character is feeling. So, and and it's easy, but there are five of them and you can kind of go through and spot like, okay, so, so like, what's she feeling here or what's she smelling or what, you know, we pretty much know what she's seeing and hearing that we're going to, but let's, let's bring the others in if we can. Lovely reminder. Thank you. Can you share a, um, anything that happened in your writing career that has been mortifying in any way? Um, yes. And this concerns our mutual agent, because that is how I came to you, Susanna. Well, I hope I've, I've joked and said, I have, I've had one husband and like seven agents, but I really hope she's going to be the last one. And she's younger than me. So it's like many years. So that's good. Uh, so the uh, the first book that we worked on together was called Not Our Kind, and um, that's where I, when I became Kitty Zeldis. But she was in there all along. But anyway, I became Kitty Zeldis officially, and she was really excited about the manuscript. And she said, "I'm going to do a blitz. I'm sending it out to like 30 people. We're going to have a bidding war. It's going to be great." Nobody took it. No one. Zero. Nada. Nothing. It was really mortifying. Really. And it goes to show that even agents who are excellent at their jobs, the the, the publishing industry is so capricious. And yes, and that's right. And I asked her. I said, like, you didn't do this to be nice to me. Right. No, you Susanna doesn't do that. No, and that yeah. doesn't help anyone. You did this because you thought this manuscript was going to sell. Like, what were we missing? And she said, I don't know. I really don't know what happened. I was so sure that I was gonna sell this on the first round. But in that case, a um, enough people said the same thing about it. Mm-hmm. Like, look, this isn't this, didn't like that. And like when four or five people say that, and then one person, um, Emily Griffin at HarperCollins said, if you change that thing, which basically was rewriting the second half of the book, mm-hmm. like scrapping what I had and just wow. rewriting it. Uh, she said, I would look at it again. And Susanna said, I think you should do that. You know, I think it's worth it to do that because several people have said it and she's offered to read it again. And and she even said, I'd like to read it on an exclusive basis. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that was- um, So she was so, real serious. 
curious about it. And, and I can't say that I jumped on board right away. I, I moped around for a while. There were several weeks when I oscillated between reruns of Law and Order um, Special Victims Unit, right? And, and Modern Family. So they were like totally opposite ends of the ball. And I was, um, you know, kind of whining and pouting. And I said to someone, my friend Jenny Fields, a wonderful novelist, and I have brought her to Susanna. Like that, that's like a connection I made. I feel really happy about it. And I said, I can't do this. And she said, you just pull up your big girl pants and you can. And I don't know why that worked. Because like, like I thought, okay. And every day when I got to work, I'd say to myself, see Jenny, I'm pulling up my big girl pants. Oh. And I did, and I rewrote it and she bought it. So it- I love that, that story. That, that mortification, yeah, it was, also it was- it it, go, it really goes to show that the community that we need, the writers that we need to surround us, those friends, because um, it just takes the one correct writer friend to say the one phrase that you didn't know you needed to hear to make exactly. you pull up those pants and do it. And I, and that was just the thing that made me feel like, okay, I can do this. And I did it. And I do think it was a better book for her. You know, it was a big ask, but I think she was right in the end. So it even like that, it's not like I was forced to do something that I really didn't believe in. Yeah. You know, I didn't see it at first, but when she explained to me, like, you know, I think this novel is really about the relationship between these two women and this whole second half you have that involved a trial. She said, that takes the focus completely off them. Like now they're, they're kind of sidelined and I want to see what happens when they do this, mm. you know? their employer employee they are they friends you know they they become it's complicated and like she said we want to stay there and i thought well that's true i i do want that so i did that and editors are good at their jobs that's for for a reason that's lovely thank you what is the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you in your writing career um many years ago well before susanna uh, a friend of mine when i was trying to um get an agent for a novel that became my first published novel. A friend of mine, not a writer, but she was friends with a writer and had met this writer's agent. And she invited this agent over, like kept champagne flowing all evening. And at the end of the evening, gave her the manuscript. Oh, wow. And the agent apparently said, God damn it. Like everybody knows the manuscript from me, like my podiatrist, the cab driver, all right, it just yes, gets me out. Yes. And she liked it and she sold it very nicely. So that was a, that was a very kind thing. It's beautiful. I love that. that and that agent's face, I could just imagine. Um, what is the kind of thing? Exactly. Well, we've heard, we've all heard the story of literally agents being in the, 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 the toilet and the manuscript being slid underneath the desk <laughs> at conferences, you know? Yeah. What's the kindest thing you've ever done for yourself as a writer? That's a good question. Um, I, I'm not even sure I know how to answer that. Um, I, I guess it's a sort of not one kind thing, but like a, a kind of practice of kindness. Like some days the writing doesn't go well. Some days the voice is not anywhere in your vicinity, let alone in your ear. And you just have to forgive yourself and say, okay, you know, this was not such a great day, but like tomorrow's another day. I had a good day last week, like whatever. To just not, not like live in that, um, disappointment or sense of failure mm -hmm. that, you know, it's a long process. And so, yeah. yeah and, and like, remember that and say, it's the aggregate that matters. 
It's such a, it's such a lovely gift, gift to give yourself. That's beautiful. Thank you. Can you share uh, what the best book is that you read recently and why did you love it? Um, I read a book called The Dig by Ann Bird. And this book, uh, she's some years younger than I, but like, I think she's 55 or 58. It's a first novel. And I've known her for a number of years. And, you know, I, I saw her like trying many things and they didn't work. And this one, I, I, you know, one of those, like, I didn't want to get up until I finished it. And, and it's oh. about um, the main character is a young woman from Bosnia whose parents have been killed. And she's adopted by these Americans and she does a really, you know, kind of tour de force in like inhabiting this person. I, I think it's fantastic. Speaking of writers and writing, will you tell us a little bit about the dressmakers of Prospect Heights? Um, yes, I would love to. It is it is right here. It's it a gorgeous cover. Isn't yes. it? I had nothing to do with it, so I can I can like fell over it. Um this book it kind of has two strands that I had to braid together like challah bread. Uh, one of them is New Orleans, which is a city I came to through my husband. He was a photographer and we used to do a lot of road trips and he wanted to go there with me and he really wanted me to like it. And I think he was a little worried I wasn't gonna like it. I loved it. I just love New Orleans. It's a very, uh, what? Multicultural, it's, it's a singular American city. I mean, you got the French thing, you got the Cajun thing, there's Spanish, there's Italian. It's it's a fabulous city. Food, music, streets named Terpsichore and Arado. So like I was all in, <laughs> and I it kind of stayed on my radar. And when I was there, uh, I learned that there was a period from either eighteen ninety eight or nine, and maybe the law was enacted in ninety eight. It actually, I mean, it went into effect in ninety nine, in which prostitution was legal. And the reason for this was not because they had some like Amsterdam type, you know, progressive attitude towards sex workers. Not at all. The, the city was controlled by such vicious criminals who were involved in this industry that basically they felt the only way they could get a handle on it was to legalize it. So there was a 38 block radius in which this was legal. It was called either the district or Storyville after Edmund Story, whose idea was to do this. And at that time, the train pulled into Basin Street, it was, came along Basin Street, the station, and along that was the first street of this district. And it had on it mansions, one more splendid than the next. And they were brothels in which the in which the windows were filled with women in various states of undress trying to entice the customers or get, you know, guys who were getting off the train. So this became a big draw. And as you went further back from Basin Street, you got to less and less prosperous kinds of situations, you know, and by the end of it, you'd find like a one room shack called a crib with a half naked woman sitting outside selling herself for 10 cents. I mean, that was what it was like. And so they decided to come up, they came up with this directory, kind of like a yellow page, pages for the sex industry. And the big fancy brothels paid to advertise, but every single worker was listed. You know, every, every prostitute was listed. And they were listed by age and ethnicity and name. And so I saw one of them, it was called the Blue Book. At first it was sold, very quickly it was given away at the train station at newsstands. And I saw some of these blue books in the historical, um, you know, center, or what was it called? The Historical Society in New Orleans. And so one page is open and it says white, uh, no, Caucasian 21 Jewish. This was a cattle prod to me. I thought, Jewish girl, prostitute in New Orleans? No one told me this story. I know a lot of immigration stories, 
my own family is Eastern European, Russian and Polish on one side, or Russian on the other. Like, I didn't know this story. I was very interested in this story, but I'm not a historian. So I didn't want to go look up that person and see what I could find about her. I wanted to invent her. I wanted to mm. inhabit her. Like, what made her do that? Like, how did she end up as a prostitute in New Orleans, this Jewish girl? I mean, apart from the many women and girls, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not minimizing this, who were sold into slavery, you know, uh, sexual slavery by their parents sometimes, or, you know, other people forced it. But there were also people who chose to do this. Why? What makes you do that? So I was like, I wanted to get in there and find out what made her tick. And sort of grafted onto that or braided into that to continue my challah um, metaphor uh, was my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, um, who I lived until her mid nineties. And she was kind of an awful woman. I mean, fierce, tyrannical, small. My mother used to call her the tiny tyrant and, you know, prone to rages and, you know, somebody who harbored anger and gr I don't want like any part of my grandmother really. And especially as I grew older, she lived in another state. I could really keep my distance. You know, I did that. And then she died. And as happens, I was about 45 when she died. That's like a long time to have your grandmother in your life, right? I was totally unprepared by the for the grief that I felt. And not just grief, regret. Like I knew some of the basic outlines of her life. I thought like, what was wrong with you? Why were you not more compassionate? She had a terrible, terrible life. Um, and so I started writing about her, uh, particularly her life in Russia. She was a, you know, she came from Russia and um, things that happened to her when she got here. And I think my writing about her was a way of apologizing to her mm -hmm. and attempting to give her some of the agency and dignity I could not seem to do when she was alive. So she is in this book. Her early life is in this novel um, because this this imaginary Russian, uh, this imaginary prostitute in New Orleans, this Jewish prostitute, I envisioned as a young Russian woman forced out of Russia by the anti-Semitism that was rampant in those times. And her early life is absolutely, I mean, I took what things either my grandmother told me or I was able to glean from other people. And I found myself thinking like, why hadn't I listened better to her? You know, like she wanted to tell me things and I didn't want to hear them. You know, I was like looking at my watch and looking around the room and how can I get out of here? And um, the bare outlines of this, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she was from a very assimilated and affluent family which is not typical for Russian Jews in that period. And the source of this affluence was her father's profession as a tanner. It was a disgusting job and Jews were allowed to have it because other people didn't want to do it. One of the chief components in the tanning process was urine. So we can imagine what it might have smelled like to go into a factory where this was happening. And her father was, so she described to me like a house a very fine house with parquet floors and velvet drapes and crystal chandeliers. She spoke Russian at home, not Yiddish. I mean, she knew a little Yiddish, but that was very unusual. Mm -hmm. like, you know, she, was, she grew up Russian speaking and the, um, the sisters had dancing lessons. She had a big family. So the older sisters had dancing lessons and music lessons and the boys went to a military academy. Again, young men in, you know, in Russia, Jewish men were not doing this. So my great, great grandfather's money must have 
you know, provided an exception, like those boys were going to go. And then he was murdered in circumstances that no one really knows about. And that scene in this book, his body was delivered to that house. Yeah. After which, and this I did not use in the novel, she told me her mother took poison. Oh, wow. And she said, I remember the burns around her mouth quite a story, right? But she didn't die. So she rounded up the four or five youngest children. Many of the children were already older, married, had families of their own. She took the few youngest ones and she took them first to Riga. And and before this, now the revolution has also come. And so she sells off like this house piece by piece. She goes out every day to sell, you know, crystal and silver and rugs and whatever she can carry. And she gets enough money to take them first to Riga, which is a port city, and then to the United States. Mm. So I used all that. Now, I will say, you know, just to, we have to have some factual adherence here. My grandmother probably never went to New Orleans and certainly was never a prostitute or a madam, which is what happens to this. <laughs> but that is what you get so, to do as the fiction writer, as the novelist. Right, that's right, where you get to right, have the fun. Right. So yeah. that's how I put this together. And oh, I love that. I write about New Orleans, which I loved, and it let me kind of give my grand, you know, like get my grandmother's story in print. That's beautiful. And I I had no idea that there was, there was that history underneath, although it is very obviously impeccably researched. And I, and I felt like it was all true, true, true. Um, And at its core too, is the whole mother daughter story. Um, in multiple ways. That's giving away nothing about anything. Uh, but that's always one of my favorite things to read. And I enjoyed the heck out of this book. And I thank you for writing you. it and thank for allowing so me to read it. And I can't remember where we are in the process. Is it out now or is it coming out soon? It's out. It's been okay, out great. since December and it Fabulous. will be out in paperback um, in September. Fabulous. I, I awesome. It's just what people like. And I can it's an audio book. I mean, I yeah. guess or yeah. an ebook because everything is now. Right. And that's all findable easily. Where can we find you? I'm, I'm on Instagram as Kitty Zeldis and I'm on Facebook as Kitty Zeldis. Nobody else has that name. I'm that's pretty wonderful. It's a lovely, it's a lovely, unique name that is completely easy to spell. So um, really, that's uh, the lottery. Uh, okay, yeah. well, it's, it, it is mine and it's not mine. Zeldis is my maiden name. I have another name that shall remain. Not <laughs> right now. But Kitty was a college nickname. Oh. And it was decided that I should use a pseudonym for this book. So, like, it didn't, and they, and HarperCollins let me use Zeldis. Fine. And so cool. people were calling me Kitty for years, like a whole contingent of people, not mm-hmm. my mother. Um, but, but that's okay. My mother's the one who gave me the god awful name that I have. I haven't quite forgiven her, but now that she's in her nineties and bedridden and mildly demented, I think it is time for you to forgive your mother for this. Like, like we should we should be thinking of forgiveness, right? That's yeah, that should be the dominant feeling here. But so but so Kitty felt like yeah, like I uh, like I automatically look up when someone says it. It's perfect. That's perfect. It has been a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I wish you the best and happy writing. Thank you. Uh, Now you make me want to come to New Zealand. You should. I will hold a room for you. Thanks, Kitty. Okay. It's really, how how many hours is the flight? Oh, it's like 117 hours. It's like uh, from New York, 15. Yeah. Not too bad. Yeah. I don't think I could be in the air for 15 hours. I think I'd have to go someplace, stop, and then do yeah. I mean, Hawaii, Fiji, Tonga, those are, those are in between. 
<laughs> Thank you so uh, much, Kitty. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelherron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelherron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends.